And I'm using, I got fancy, because I wasn't going to have Michael show me up anymore. <laughs> so I got fancy, and I got one of these. It was free, right? That's nice. It's even better. It was a gift from work, so it's even better. And I got a free watch. It's awesome. It was a good, it was a good week. Um, I'm going to use one of them. <laughs> Anyways, there's, there's about 20 points that I really want to cover the difference between what an orphan looks at and a son. And then I'm going to go into the sermon. Um, so if we're really late today, we're going to blame Taylor because she prayed really long. See how I did that? Like, it was great. It was exactly what was needed. Amen. Jesus did help. So orphan versus son. So the image of God. Orphans see God as a master whom they must appease continually. They feel that they must pray more, read the Bible more, study more, work harder to earn God's notice and favor. They're often left with a feeling that there's something more that they must do or put in order before God will be pleased with them. And to an orphan, God's not just master, but he's also a taskmaster. So he's, he's somebody we have to serve and somebody that tells us what to do, how to do it, when to do it. Sons, on the other hand, see God as a loving father who accepts them unconditionally. They know that unconditional love is never based upon the performance of the one receiving it, but upon the nature of the one giving it. Therefore, they do not have to strive or act in any certain way to earn father's love. In Christ, he loves them anyway, fully and completely, just as they are. So I'm not going to do this with all of them, so bear with me. But I, I think that there's a, there's a, a story from my life that I, I need to just point out. Um, I don't even know how many years ago it was, but I had messed up, right? So I, I screwed up and sinned and, and did something stupid, and, and I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go earn God's favor back. So the next day... And in my thought, I thought, well, God's telling me to go pray for business owners in the city that I lived in. So I'm going to go downtown and I'm going to go into every store and I'm going to ask them how I can pray for them. And I thought this and even in the moment, I didn't think that that would it wasn't something that I was doing as like a kind of a penance thing. It wasn't kind of it was something that I felt called to do. Well, later on, I figured out it really wasn't anything that I was called to do. It was something that I was trying to do to earn God's favor back. I thought if I went and prayed for people, surely God will forget what I just did, right? And I went and prayed for people, and it was, it was good, but there was no power in it. God wasn't in it because he didn't call me to it. So that's, that's just a, a, a really simple example of how we can, as orphans, believe that we have to go do something for God to earn his approval. Whereas God really just wants us to submit ourselves to him. Number two, dependency. Orphans are, in, orphans are independent and self-reliant. They depend upon their gifts, talents, intellect, and anointing. They're convinced that they cannot trust anyone else. If they want anything, they must get it for themselves. If anything's going to get done right, they'll have to do it themselves, right? I'll just have to do it myself if it's going to be done right. Sons or daughters are interdependent. 
They know they need the community of love that God and the body of Christ offer. This interdependency allows them to be open for Father's love to flow through them to others. Sons also know they are completely dependent on their Heavenly Father just as Jesus was. See, I was messing up. (laughs) John 5.19, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, those things the Son also does in like manner. So, I was actually um, talking to somebody yesterday at work, and she was telling me how the women's uh, minister, leader at their church has been complaining and complaining and complaining, wanting help because she doesn't have any help. But when people go help, she doesn't let them help. Because if she lets them help, I mean, she didn't say this, but if she lets them help, well, then the focus isn't on her anymore. It's on other people. Other people are getting the credit, and she's not. That's, I, I even looked at her, and I said, well, she's just got an orphan spirit. And she said, what's that? <laughs> First she agreed with me, and then she got this really confused look on her face. and What's that? Um, number three, theology. Orphans live by the love of law. Like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, orphans try to relate to God on the basis of adherence to laws, principles, rules, and regulations. Orphans value obedience more than relationship. Sons live by the law of love. They value truth, knowing that the greatest truth of all is living to receive Father's love and giving it away to the next person they meet. Sons understand the principle of Romans 13.10, that love is the fulfillment of the law. Number four, security. Orphans are insecure, but usually become quite adept at covering their insecurity. They often strive to act right and do enough to please God and earn His blessings. Therefore, they rarely rarely experience an inward peace and rest. Life for an orphan is often filled with uncertainty and fears of trusting, abandonment, and intimacy. Sons, in contrast, are at peace and rest in Father's embrace. They know that their security in God does not depend on their behavior, but it is based on the grace of God and on the saving work of God. That Jesus did on the cross. So, um, I was really, really good at covering up my insecurities. Um, I was good at putting on a front to where I looked like I was confident, but inside I was just completely a mess. I think, too, as, we, as I read through these, um, it's important to just start thinking about. You don't have to embody all of this to have an orphan spirit, by the way. I think at one point, I I did. I think at one point I had all of these going on. I was a mess. But you don't always have to have everything. And here's the thing, is if there's one thing that you identify with, it has to go. So it's not like taking a test at school where it's like, well, I got an 80%, pretty good. No, there's no passing grade, except for 100%. Number five, uh, need for approval. The need for approval is universal. We all, I mean, we all desire acceptance, right? We all want to be accepted. We all want to be approved. We all want to be liked, because that's good. Orphans, however, are addicted to and strive for the praise, approval, and acceptance of man. 
but these counterfeit infections will not satisfy and instead lead to the fear of failure and rejection, which pulls an orphan heart farther away from God. Sons are not influenced by this turmoil and fear because they know that they are totally accepted in God's love and justified by His grace. They don't have to strive for approval because in Christ they already have it. So I've said in the past, I really don't care if people like me. Of course, when I said that, I really did care that people liked me because it really did bother me if somebody didn't like me. But I think that now I don't have to say it because I really truly embody it. I mean, not everybody's going to like me. I don't rub everybody the right way, and that's just fine. But all I need is his approval. We're not striving for man's approval. We just need God's approval. Um, Number six, motive for service. Orphans serve out of a sense of need for personal achievement as they seek to impress God and others. This often takes the form of hyper-religious activity. Some orphans then become so tired or cynical with the struggle that they lose motivation for serving and end up in apathy, just like that woman I was just telling you about. Sons, on the other hand, joyfully serve out of a motivation driven by a deep sense of gratitude for God's unconditional love and acceptance. Orphans serve expecting something in return. Sons serve out of love and are giving-oriented. Number seven, the motive behind Christian disciplines. I like this one. So while some orphans are apathetic and possess no motivation for observing Christian discipline, there are those who do pursue pursue the Christian disciplines, like prayer, Bible reading, studying, fasting, all that kind of stuff. So out of a sense of duty and hope of earning God's favor, though, that's so we do. So orphans do those things so they can say they did those things. Right. So they think that if they pray enough, God will love them or God will accept them or he'll forget all the things that they did yesterday. They often evaluate how spiritual they are um, and others are by how much they spend time, spend each day in prayer and Bible reading and often how often they fast. Many orphans can quote the Bible extensively and pray for hours at a time, yet have never known personally the affectionate love and acceptance of God. Isn't that incredible? That, that, and I've encountered these people. I mean, it, that they, they know the Bible better than I do, but they don't know Jesus. Isn't that sad? To think that you can, you can recite the Scriptures Know them like the back of your hand, but never truly understand who Jesus is. That's, it's, it's really mind-boggling to me. But it's the, it's the scheme of the enemy. Um, where am I at? So just like in, in John chapter 5, 39, Jesus actually chastised the Pharisees. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Because their motivation's wrong, orphans who practice the Christian disciplines easily miss the love and intimacy of God. Sons find the Christian disciplines a pleasure and a delight rather than a duty. The things they, those who receive a deep revelation of Father's love often discover that many of the things they used to do religiously either lose their importance or take on a whole new meaning for them. A new motivation of love replaces the old motivation of duty, obligation, and fear. 
For sons, all the things of the Spirit, including the Christian disciplines, become sources of joy and pleasure because love brings life where duty and the letter of the law bring death. So a quick note on that. I remember when I started getting up early because people said that if you get up early, Jesus is like, he wakes up too at 5 a.m., so that's when you get to talk to Jesus. And I thought, well, I want to do that. Everybody else gets up early. I hate, I hated getting up early. And I tried so many times, like I'd set my alarm and I'd be like, well, that was A for effort, right, God? I didn't, I got, I I set my alarm at five, I got up at seven. (laughs) But I set my alarm, God. And I read two two verses when I got up at seven because I didn't have time to do anything else. So I desired to have this relationship that other people had, but I had really no motivation for it. So when I really started doing it, I remember getting up early in the morning and thinking, what am I supposed to do? Like, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to drink some coffee and I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to wait for God to speak or whatever. And at first it was, I'm doing this because I know I need to. But then it became this pleasure. Like it was like I, could, I cannot go a day without getting up and spending at least an hour and a half with Jesus every morning. And that's not boasting. It's not, and it's not, even, it doesn't even, it's not even a discipline to me. It's a joy. It's something that I know that I need if I'm going to be who I need to be for him in that day. Um, number eight, motive for purity. Orphans believe they must be holy to be accepted by God. They must be completely pure in order to win his favor and avoid his judgment and wrath. The only way they know to achieve in these areas is to work and strive for them. Therefore, they live with an increasing sense of guilt and shame over their continuing failure to achieve perfect purity and holiness. Sons want to be holy out of love for their father. It's natural for sons to take after fathers. Like they just want, like, you know, when you're growing up as a kid, they want to be like dad. There's sons who are secure in their father's love, don't want anything to hinder their intimate relationship. They don't want to grieve him. They just want to be a resting place for God's love and his presence. Unconditional love is a greater motivator for purity than fear and intimidation. Come on. I mean, that's really good. Uh, Make sure you write that down. Quote me on Facebook. Make me look good. I'm just playing. Don't do that. Please don't. I don't have an orphan spirit. That was a test. <laughs> Number nine, <laughs> self-image. Orphans generally possess a low self-image and an attitude of self-rejection, which results from comparing themselves to others and feeling that they come out on the short end of the stick. You know, others seem more blessed. Others are more favored. They have more things. They get all the breaks. They don't have the problems I have. They're more loved. They're more liked. Sons feel positive and affirmed because they know how valuable and precious they are to their father. No matter what they do or how many times they mess up, they know that Father loves them anyway. They can pick themselves up and keep going because feeling secure in Father's love, they know that they can do or be anything. 
Here's the thing. Well, let me, I'm going to get through these, and then I'm going to say that. Remind me I'm going to say something. Number 10, source of comfort. <laughs> because they have, <laughs> I'm having too much fun. Number 10, source of comfort. Because they have shut a portion of their heart off from expressed love, orphans seek comfort in counterfeit affections, addictions, compulsions, escapism, busyness, hyper-religious activity, believing that the busier they are, the happier they are, and the more worthy they are of Father's love. And because they have an independent spirit and depend on themselves, orphans find a false sense of comfort in their own good works. Sons, however, find true comfort in times of quietness and solitude as they rest in Father's presence and love. They have discovered that once having tasted of that place of rest, everything the world or religiosity has to offer pales in comparison. Nothing compares with the comfort and joy of a son basking in the unconditional love of his father. It's so true. Number 11, peer relationships. Orphans often relate to their peers through competition, rivalry, or jealousy toward others' success and position. They believe they have to fight and scramble for every advantage and desire. Orphans cannot genuinely rejoice over the success or advancement of others. They fear that if they are not on top, they will not be valued or respected. For sons, on the other hand, peer relationships are all about humility and unity as they honor and value others and sincerely rejoice in their blessings and success. Sons are secure in their own identity and position, and therefore they, they need not fear for the success or advancement of others. I work with somebody that um, she's never, uh, never had competition, and I sell houses for a living. She's never had competition. She's always had people that, that just never, they've never taken business from her. She's always had business because the other salespeople that, that used to work there weren't good salespeople. And uh, I started, and I had a slow go at first, but now I've taken taken some of the money that she used to make, not on purpose, I'm not taking her customers, it's just I'm a better salesperson than she's ever dealt with or worked with. So she gets in these scrambles where she feels like if she doesn't make this much money, now she makes a lot of money, she makes more money than I do, but if she doesn't make this much money that she won't be valued by our manager or her boss, or she'll look insignificant in the grand scheme of things. It's an orphan mentality. It's an orphan spirit. It's so crazy. I've been doing so much research and reading books and, and all that kind of stuff to, to really understand the demonic realm and what is active around us. And it's crazy um, to be able to pinpoint things as I see them, to go, oh. But it, here's the thing. When we do that, it becomes a focus that that's from the enemy and it's not the person because our war is not against flesh. Number 12, handling others' faults. Conflicts are unavoidable and it's an everyday part of life wherever people interact with another. Therefore, effective conflict resolution is a vital part of healthy interpersonal relationships. Orphans, being self-focused, generally, res generally resort to accusation and exposure of other people's fa faults. 
while denying or trying to hide their own. In an effort to make themselves look good, they attempt to make others look bad. They seek to build themselves up by tearing others down and destroy relationships with issues of control, criticalness, possessiveness, or the lack of respect and honor. Sons are relationship-oriented. In love, they cover, not hide, others' faults as they seek to restore those individuals in a spirit of love and gentleness. Covering a fault is different from covering up a fault. Covering protects a person from humiliating and destructive exposure until the conflict or fault can be resolved. Covering up a fault is an effort to deceive, which is a sign of orphan thinking. Um, orphans, they, they like to point out the faults of others. Sons and daughters, they don't need to. We don't need to point out what was done wrong to us. It's about restoration. That becomes the focus. How can I lift that person up? How can I restore that person to the feet of Jesus instead of how can I tear them down? Number 13, view of authority. Because of the abuse and mistreatment they have suffered at the hands of authority figures in their lives, this one is really prevalent in the church today. Orphans will see authority as a source of pain and are therefore suspicious of any other authority except their own. They're distrustful, distrustful of the motives of those in authority, whether at home, at work, at church, or anywhere else. This is due at least in part to their lack of a heart attitude of humility and submission. Orphans resent and fear suggestions that they should submit to anyone by getting underneath them and supporting them. They regard being subject to someone else's mission as nothing more than allowing themselves to be used that, by that person. Sons and daughters, however, look at authority differently. Sons are respectful and honoring of legitimate authority, seeing authority figures as ministers of God for good in their lives. Another way of illustrating this contrast is to say that sons are teachable, but orphans aren't. So whether we like it or not, the person that's in authority, we have to respect and honor, right? Whether they're complete imbeciles or not. Because let's face it, there are some that are in leadership or in authority that we think shouldn't be there. But that's not for us to decide. Amen? It's for us to respect, honor, and submit. And allow God to do what He is going to do. Right? We get so hung up on that, especially in the church. Well, that person hurt me, or that pastor hurt me, or the people leave the church all the time because of, of the authority or the leadership of the church because they didn't like it, or they didn't like this, or that person wouldn't listen to me, or this person wouldn't listen to me, or the pastor dressed this way, or the pastor did that. Or, oh, my gosh. It is true. I mean, we smile and we laugh and we shake our heads, but it's all true. People leave the church for goofy things like that. And I'm sorry, but I, I don't believe that if we ask Jesus or completely looked at him and said, well, you know, the pastor, he, he dresses like a fool. He wears this red plaid shirt and come on, and he doesn't even tuck it in. How can I serve under a man like that? I mean, but seriously, I mean, and trust me, I've seen much worse. The pastor that we that, that I served under, he, 
He, had, he was a larger man, and he had quite the stomach. And, 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 I, and listen, everything I'm saying, if he would sit right here, I would say it. So I am not at all. I honor him, love him, and oh my gosh, did I submit to him, and I did it with joy because he was, he was an incredible godly man and still is. But I can't tell you how many times that man would raise his hands in the church, and he couldn't raise them very good because he had so many issues, but he would raise them up a little bit, and his stomach, his shirt would lift up, and his stomach, oh, we, we would take these trips to Canada, and because, and because his stomach would always end up being exposed, he would have to spray bug spray on his stomach, or he would get eaten alive right here by the mosquitoes. I'm sorry, but that was a, whoa, that was a rabbit trail. But I made you laugh, so that's all that really matters. <laughs> I don't, I, yeah, I don't even know where that, that was an issue. Anyways, yes, that's how I got there. I don't even understand it. <laughs> I just love him so much. Um, number 14, view of admonition. Orphans, and admonition is basically correction. Just a quick understanding of what that word is. Orphans have difficulty receiving, I'll just use correction. Um, orphans have difficulty receiving correction, even godly correction, because they have difficulty, difficulty acknowledging when they're wrong. In their own minds, they must be right. So when correction comes, they receive it as a personal offense or rejection. To justify their conclusions, they focus on others' faults, blame other people, try to vindicate and justify themselves, become negative or accusatory, or close their spirits to the one trying to speak correction into their life. Sons receive correction as a blessing and a need in their lives because it exposes faults and weaknesses that they may not be aware of. They seek to put these weaknesses to death before they become relationship-threatening problems. Even through correction may first, even though, I'm sorry, even though correction may first cause their fur to bristle, they recognize it's a valuable correction and an opportunity for growth. Without growth, there's no maturity, and without maturity, there's no inheritance. Um, we, we spent probably the first, I don't know, how long have we been married? 16 years, 15 years this year? 15 years? Um, this has been the first, what? 13 and a half years <laughs> with this problem. I did. <laughs> She'd come to me and I'd be like, whoa, wait a minute. Uh-uh, you did this. That's an orphan spirit. I wasn't willing. I am a lot more willing now. Number 15, expression of love. Orphans are guarded and conditional in their expressions of love. Expressed love by an orphan is based on others' performance and agreement because orphans have closed their hearts to love. They neither know how to give unconditional love nor how to receive it. For sons, love is open, transparent, and affectionate. They lay down their own agendas in order to meet the needs of others. Love for an orphan is built on the question, what can you do for me? While love for a son is built around the question, what can I do for you? Love for an orphan is self-love. Love for a daughter is selfless love. It means showing affection or affirmation even when he doesn't feel like showing it simply because he knows the other person is in need of it. Isn't that hard? We have to love even when we don't feel like loving. Mm. 
Huh? Right. Yes. Write that down, Brett and Taylor. <laughs> 16. Sense of God's presence. We're almost to the sermon. For orphans... <laughs> Misty's like, I just want to go. <laughs> 16, sense of God's presence. For, or- <laughs> For orphans, God's presence, if they sense it at all, is conditional and distant. It's, if, so- if everything goes all right, if they have a good day, if they feel they've appeased the master, if they think they've dotted all their I's and crossed all their T's, then they may sense God's presence. But even then, he often seems far away because their hearts are closed to intimacy. Sons and daughters enjoy the close and intimate presence of God because they know that his presence and nearness do not depend on their behavior. They've discovered that he is with them all the time, no matter how much they get off center of his love. All they have to do is stop, return to the center of their heart where, God, where God's love dwells, and he's always right there. Sons know from personal experience the truth of the scripture that says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, which is Hebrews 13, 5. Orphans question whether God loves them. Sons know that God's crazy about them. Number 17, condition. Orphans are in bondage. They're bound. They, whether they realize it or not, the majority of them don't. They're slaves to their fear, their mistrust, their, in, their independence and self-reliance, their sense of self-righteousness and self-justification, and most of all, to their loneliness. Sons, on the other hand, live in the condition of liberty. Love has set them free from fear, shame, humiliation, guilt, and the constant need to prove themselves. They're free not only to receive love, but also to give it away in abundance. Without running out, sons are free to become everything their father created them to be. Number 18, position. Orphans live life as if they don't have a home. They feel like servants or slaves. Their spirit is unsettled because they are away from safe harbor and don't know how to get back. They're frozen in Numnumville in the midst of the sea of fear. Nothing satisfies, nothing feels permanent, nowhere feels like home. Sons are at rest and at peace in the safe harbor of their father's love. Outside the harbor, the sea may churn and the wind may blow, but inside all is calm and father's embrace. Number 19, vision. Orphans are fired by spiritual ambition. They earnestly desire some spiritual achievement or distinction and are willing to strive to achieve it. They desire to be seen and counted among the mature. With sons, there's no proving, no striving after position, power, or prestige. Instead, they are content simply, simply to experience daily their father's unconditional love and acceptance and then be sent as a representative of his love to family and others. Intimacy precedes fruitfulness. Intimacy precedes fruitfulness. You can't have fruitfulness without intimacy. That when I was a worship leader, everybody wanted to be on the worship team. It, like, it, was, it baffled me that everybody wanted to be on the worship team. Like, do you have talent? No. Do you love Jesus? Kind of. Do you serve him every day? Well, do you, I know what you do uh, every other day of the week. Why do you want to be on the worship team? Well, they'd never say what they really wanted. It's just so they could be up front. They didn't, 
really want to be heard even. They just wanted to be noticed, right? And I don't know why, but it seems like the, like the worship team is always the focus for that. Like, everybody wants to be on the worship team. And they would, never mind. <laughs> well, they knew the response that I would give them. I just got, no. So they'd go, they'd go to the pastor's wife. They'd go through her and ask her if they could be on the worship team. Well, she served on the worship team as well, but I was the worship leader. So then she'd come to me and go, so-and-so thinks they should be on the worship team. And I said, no. <laughs> it was like never-ending. It all happened all the time. Number 20, future. For orphans, the future, like many other things in life, is always uncertain. Their attitude is fight for everything you can get because they have no inheritance. Orphans must compete for what they want, depending solely on their own gifts and talents to control and manipulate circumstances in their favor. And because the future is uncertain, they're most interested in what benefits them right now. Sons are willing to wait for their inheritance because they know that their future is as bright as certain. As sons of a loving father with infinite resources, they know they cannot lose and are willing to suffer now for the glory that lies ahead. Sons know that sonship releases inheritance and they can patiently rest in their positions as sons. And out of the sermon. Um, don't. That's why you don't wear them. That's why I'm not wearing that watch. So we know that there's an orphan spirit, right? And we know not only is there... The real thing to understand is where did it originate? Where did it come from? So it's easy. It's always a tendency for us to say, well, it's because... Um, like for me, the tendency is, well, it was because I don't know who my real dad is. So therefore, I have this orphan mentality. I feel um, abandoned or I feel alone or, or whatever it is. Or it was because people didn't like me. Or it was because, I mean, we want to find specific things in our life. And I'm not saying that things don't add to that. But the thing is, is that an orphan spirit is something that we've inherited. So it's something we're born with. It's not, it's not, it's, it's part of the sinful nature, but it's separate. So when we, when we're forgiven for our sins, it doesn't mean that the orphan spirit goes. It can, but it doesn't mean that it does. It's not, they're not joined. There's two separate things. So the orphan spirit originated from... Lucifer, the angel that became homeless with a third of the angels of heaven, right? So Revelation 12, 4, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and, be- and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the, gar- the garden of God. 
Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, and the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Why? (laughs) Why? I mean, this just sounds glorious, doesn't it? By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to the ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. And all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will cease to be forever. So that there's talking about Lucifer. He's talking about Satan. Isaiah 14, 10 through 17. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we, you have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to shoal. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms are your covering. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities? Who did not allow his prisoners to go home? So, all of that shows us where the orphan spirit originated. It originated in Satan. He was cast out of heaven by his own works, by his own choices. God cast him out and he became homeless. (laughs) And then... In Genesis 3.22, that orphan spirit was transferred to humanity. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the, fa- and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So at the fall, man became homeless. We took on the nature of the enemy. We took on the nature of the devil. And homelessness was part of his nature. Because he was kicked out of heaven. Because he tried to... I mean, at some, he was like 
a drug dealer getting pulled over by the cops saying, well, that's not my drugs. And he got caught. One really important thing that we have to identify and we have to understand and get is that it's, it has to be called exactly what it is, right? So we like to use words like mentality or nature or mindset because it separates this, this demonic realm, this thing that, that is active, that is going on around us, but we don't like to recognize that. We don't like to say, well, it's, it's part of demonic activity. So we can't, what I'm getting at here is that we can't say, I have an orphan mindset, or I have an orphan mentality, or I have an orphan nature. It's, an, it's a spirit, and it has to go. Okay, so we have to identify it for what it really is. And it's an orphan spirit. It is a spirit that is demonically influenced. The beauty of all of this is that ever since the fall, God has continued to call man back to him. Isn't that amazing? Listen, there was consequences for the fall. There were consequences for Adam and Eve's actions. And God had no choice but to kick them out of the garden. But ever since he did, he's been calling them back. He's been calling us back. In Genesis 17, 7, 8, it says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God so he wants to give us a home. He wishes for us not to live homeless any longer. He wants to give us a place of rest. So we, we get the Old Testament, we get to the New Testament and find nothing's changed. And we get here today and nothing's changed. There are, there are countless Christians that live from an orphan spirit, that they live not believing that they are anything to anybody, and they feed off of others. Um, and here's the thing, that nothing's changed in the demonic realm either. So Satan is still homeless, and his demons are still roaming, and they're looking for homes. Luke 11 says, 11, 12, 24 when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. So demons are looking for a place to rest. And we <laughs> are their targets. Truthfully, we really are. And when we have... Uh, when we have that orphan spirit, it becomes all-consuming. Um, in Luke fifteen eleven, it's a story that all of us know really well. It's the prodigal son. Um, 
And I don't even know if I'm going to read it, to be honest with you. But we know the story, right? I mean, is everybody familiar with the story? It's a story that we probably heard preached countless times or talked about countless times. Some, many of, some of us are prodigals, and we've come back. But it gives us, this story gives us such an insight on the way the orphan spirit manifests. And, and it not only in the younger brother, but also the older brother. So the younger brother, he didn't even realize what he had. And he said, I'm going to go make it on my own. I'm going to go take everything that's mine, and I'm going to... I don't know what he thought, but of course we know he went and he squandered it all away because he tried to perform on his own because he had an orphan spirit. He didn't understand or even see the Father's love that was right before him and everything the Father had for him. He missed it completely. The older brother... Uh, the older brother is a couple different things, but he, he completely missed what the father had for him too and never actually embraced the true inheritance that the father had for him. And then on the second hand, he, like many in the church, the orphan spirit manifests in the way that the younger brother comes back and he can't rejoice for him because he's just upset because the father is so overjoyed and isn't even paying attention to everything that the younger brother did. So he, he, can't, he can't even rejoice for his own brother. And how many times in the church do we find that people can't rejoice over the blessings or the advancements or the maturity of the younger brother and sister because we're so caught up in not getting the recognition that we think we need or what what about me I was here all along I've been serving this church for 60 years what about me why does that person or I've been here for 15 years or whatever it is why do they get to sing on the worship team? Or why do they get to be in this leadership position? Or why do they get to go and have dinner with the pastor? What about me? I want to do those things. We complain about the things that we don't have. We completely miss what we do have. And we can blame that on the world and we can blame that on the media, we can blame that on all sorts of things, but ultimately, it's the nature we were born into. It's our inheritance unless we decide it's not anymore. Come on. What? It's our inheritance unless we decide it's not anymore. It's, it's our decision. We have to make it. So God's inheritance and his heir is available to all. But we have to believe that. We have to own it. We have to walk it out. It's not just enough to know it. I mean, the whole gospel is, that can be, I mean, that can be said about every part of the gospel. It's not enough to just know it. We have to live it. We have to, we have to embody it. It has to be, everything we know at the very core of our being. It has to be the posture of our heart. 
And here's the thing. I want to, this is a little bit separate, but I want to say this because it's important. When the Bible, the Bible mentions the word heart and refers to heart over 800 times throughout Scripture. And never once is it actually talking about this. It is not talking about this heart that pumps blood through our body. Our heart, and, and you have, I have Jay Jellison to thank for this because he gave me this revelation because he received it from the Father and, and the Scripture. But, but our heart is actually right here. It's our prefrontal cortex. This is like where, this is prime real estate, okay? This is, this is the exact space that every, everything that we are says this, this is where it comes from. Our behavior, our personality, our, our morals, everything. The, our decision-making, it all happens right here. Now, the rest of our brain, when, when we, we talk about our heart catching up to our mind, it's really this part of our brain catching up with the rest. This, this part needs to catch up to this. Not this and this, this and this. So what, we, what we've known all of our life and what we've experienced is all lodged right here in the back half of our brain where you know, we learn how to talk and all that kind of stuff. It's all back here. But we need it to catch up to what we know, what we experience now. Not what we've experienced, but what we're experiencing now. So that's really the hang-up for, for, for all Christians. It's our experience never catches up to what's going on right now. So it's a battle. It's not this battle. I mean, it's symbolism and all that kind of stuff. And we just went through Valentine's Day and over the heart and all that. But, but this doesn't feel... This just keeps you alive. This is where feelings come from. And this is exactly what the enemy wants access to. And for 75, I think it's more than 75%, but probably 85% of people, he does. He has full access. He can come and go as he pleases. And this is where the Holy Spirit dwells. Not here, here. This is where he wants to take up real estate. This is where he wants to make his home, is our heart. And, it's, and it, it, it is the word cardia with a K, not a C. And it means mind. So it's not this, it's this. We have to get that. I think this is really vital and, and important because otherwise it's kind of a, it's, it's a disconnect. So our prefrontal cortex is, is really, when, when Scripture talks about our heart, this is it. This is it. And the battlefield of the mind, Joyce Meyer wrote a, an incredible book because it, it really is a battle. This is where the battle wages. I mean, it, it rages on all the time. The enemy wants access to our heart so he can tell us all the lies that, that we've lived out or we've believed. 
And he uses our experiences to influence this. So there's, there's five things that, that the orphan spirit influences in our lives. It's the, it, it seeks to drive a wedge between our heart and Father's love. It, it wants a disconnect to, be, to make us believe that there is no way that God could ever love us. And it uses the experiences that we've had or the things that we've done or the things that have been done to us to cut the ties and to say there's no way that God, and that's what the enemy does. It tries to convince God, or it tries to convince that God is the cause of all of our troubles. Oh, that seems ludicrous, but it's so valid. How many people will go... I think God's testing me. Mm-mm. I think the enemy's distracting you. Number three, it causes us to look for answers from any other source than our Father. So this is, we get impatient. We don't, we don't know the answer and we can't look it up, and we can't find it anywhere, but man, do we try. I mean, we try, and we try to figure out and rack our brains. I've done it. I've, I'm an overanalyzer, and I'm learning and learning and learning and learning that I can't analyze God, and it's a continuous process for me because I like to analyze things. I like to know everything that's going to happen before I start, and that's not the way God works. He doesn't give me anything, and it's uncomfortable as ever. Number four, an orphan spirit creates confusion and distance between us and those close to us. So God has placed certain people in our lives to help us. I mean, there are, there are, there's a pastor in Michigan that I, that I disciple with on a weekly basis. But in the beginning, when God asked me to do it, there was, well, I mean, who am I? What kind of experience do I have for him? It creates confusion and tries to to blur the lines of what God wants to do. There is no confusion in Christ Jesus. If you're confused, the enemy has a stronghold in your mind. Amen? I mean... We really got to point these things out, guys. I mean, we have to call them for what they are, because if we don't, we never get free. If we skirt around it and make excuses, we never truly get free from the things that are holding us. We might have a moment. We might have a week. We might even have two weeks. But eventually it pops back up. I'm speaking from experience. Number five It causes us to live in despair when not healed by the power of Christ. Hmm. You know how many times 
um, I've cried out for things and I've prayed or I've gone to the altar and laid something down before God and then it comes back and I get such, I'm in such turmoil and despair because wait a minute, I told you to take that God and you said you would. But what I miss and what we all miss is that somewhere along the lines we picked it back up. And we never really let it go in the first place. We asked God to take it, but we never relinquished it. Right? So there is work on our part that has to be done. God is, is not forceful. We have to understand that God is not forceful. He never reaches in and takes something that we don't give Him access to. And it's more than just words. I mean... We can cry out and ask for healing, and we can cry, but would we really do want, do we want it? It's kind of like what we, we, we stress an emphasis on revival. We can pray for revival, but do we really want it? Come on. Do we really want the messiness? Do we really want the chaos? Because revival is not neat and clean. It's not. Read the history. It's not. People, things get unhinged. Undignified, as people would say. And that's why when we cry out for revival and we pray for it, I mean, there have been great men and women of faith that have cried out for it for years and years and years, but I don't think they really wanted it. They wanted the image of revival, but they didn't want everything that comes along with it. And things get messy. Anyways, we, we, have, to, we have to live in a, in a place where we're okay if the healing doesn't come. And also understand that if there's stronghold in our life, it's not because God doesn't want to take it or remove it. It's because we won't let Him. So here's some scriptures that I, I find incredibly encouraging. And I'm just going to run through them. And then I'm going to be done. Okay, Missy? All right. Because she laughed really hard. That's why. I have to find somebody, right? And she's sitting all there. They're just sitting there by themselves. <laughs> Brett prayed it didn't Brett said something about our heater earlier. Or no, Taylor did, not Brett. I'm sorry. <laughs> John fourteen eighteen. Jesus promised that after his death and resurrection, he said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Isn't that beautiful? He says, I will come to you. It doesn't say, come here. I'm going to take the mode. I'm going to take the action to make sure that you don't have to live with this orphan spirit that you've inherited from the enemy. Ephesians 2, 4, 9. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, I can't talk, made us alive together with Christ. 
and raised us up with raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not as a result of works so that no one may boast Romans 8:15 through 17 for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons of, by which we cry out abba father the spirit the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of god and if children heirs also heirs of god and fellow heirs with christ if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him Come on, so with sonship comes heir. We inherit, so we lay down the inheritance that we received at birth, and which came from the fall, which comes from the sinful nature, and we receive our Father's inheritance. Come on. Everything Everything he has <laughs> becomes available to you and I. Everything. We don't have to wait. It's instant. And yet, we think we have to wait because the enemy tells us we're orphans and we have to, but we're not true inherited. We don't really have an inheritance. Um. Galatians 4, 3 through 7. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your, heart, of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Come on. So <laughs> he's taken it out of the way. He says, I'm going to remove the orphan spirit, and it is no longer going to be something that is going to bother you. Isn't that beautiful? That means we don't have to struggle with it anymore. Not another moment, not another day. God has removed it and tossed it away. Come on. Um, I really... Um, I think a lot of the, the, the issues, and, and there are many other spirits and, and all that kind of stuff that can, that can give us all sorts of problems. But I think the first and foremost is the orphan spirit. 
I think once the enemy has access to this and begins to tell us everything that's not true, it breaks us down. It, it makes us vulnerable for every other attack that he has. So the orphan spirit instantly takes away our true identity. Because our true identity is children of God. We are His heirs. We are brothers and sisters of Christ Jesus. Come on. And as soon as the enemy has access and is able to tell us different, our life, I mean, you can watch how our life will continue to tumble. Because we've believed we're somebody we're not. Hmm. The greatest thing about this is that there's not this 10-step recovery program. <laughs> and I'm not knocking any of those things. There's value in it. But we don't have to identify any longer with who we're not. One thing that, that drives me nuts is that an alcoholic will call themselves an alcoholic for the rest of their lives. But that's not who you are. You've given that up. God's taken that from you. You are no longer an orphan. You no longer identify with the things that you used to identify with. So this morning, and I, I know this has been long, and I apologize. Again, we're blaming it on Taylor. But I think there's so much information that's so vital and so important for us to recognize that it's not something that can just be summed up really quickly. Because we have to understand what we're up against, right? So we're going we're gonna to get ready and we're going to take communion together. And I think God is, is, is going to do something really cool. I think this is the last, uh, this ends our, our uh, month-long communion. Um, and I just want to say what a difference it's made in my house. We've, we've missed days, but... We've taken communion, I mean, majority of, of this last month. And the difference that I've seen in my daughters is priceless. It, I, can't even, I can't even even begin to understand. I, I looked at Madison a week ago, and I looked at her eyes, and I said, your eyes look different, sweetheart. I said, they look cleaner. They look clearer. And she just looked at me, and she knew what I was talking about. But God has done such a work in our family over the last month, and it's through the cleansing of communion. It's, and I really believe that, that to lay down the orphan spirit and to take up 
our true and rightful inheritance is the truest form of communion we could possibly have. Because from it stems everything. I think that's where intimacy begins. We can't have intimacy if we're orphans. Because there's always a disconnect. If we don't feel like we're one with God, there's always a disconnect. So I'm going to pray. But as I pray, I want you to understand that if you identify anything in your life that is of... if We went through a lot. But if there's anything in your life that God is pointing out to you that has to be laid down, I want you to understand that you don't need to be prayed for. You don't need hands to be laid on you. You don't need this special service or things that have to happen. You can do it right now in your seats. And I just feel like God wants you to get real with him for just a moment. And he wants to get real with you. I think he's, I think he's close. And it's, it's time to receive your true inheritance this morning. So I'm going to pray. And then, Brett, if you'd come and play something, and we'll just, as, you, as you're ready, I want you to just come and, and take communion on your own, and then we'll wrap things up. Papa, It almost seems hard to pray in the sense that I I can't ask you to force this to happen. And I can't ask you to, to do something that someone's not willing to have happen. We can pray all day long, God, and say, orphan spirits, or, or let us let us understand your love for us and, and all those things, but but it's a choice. It's, a, it's a, an acknowledgement within ourself that we have to make. So would you release your spirit and your breath into this room? And may each heart in here be touched. I pray, God, that you would have your way in this moment. And I silence and bind the enemy and say you have no authority or rule in this place, in the minds and the hearts of the believers. We sever the ties. We say no more. We take a stand. And we accept our inheritance from heaven. What we've inherited from you is not our true inheritance. What we've, what we've experienced, the lies that we've believed, is not truly who we are. So I say, orphan spirit, go in the name of Jesus. You are not welcome here anymore. 
you will not have any more authority over my mind or my heart. I choose Jesus. I choose to accept the inheritance that my Papa has for me. I choose to be called a child of the King. I no longer have to feel insecure. I no longer have to battle with not feeling good enough or worthy enough or loved enough because I am. Jesus, would you solidify the prayer in each of our hearts this morning? Would it not just be empty words? Would it not just be a moment? But would it last the rest of our lives? That we would choose, <laughs> we would choose to say that you are our Father. Abba, that our heart's cry would be for you and nothing else. And as we take communion, may, be, may this be a lasting moment in our hearts forever, God. May be an intimate moment with you as we take the bread and the juice. That we would just feel wrapped in your arms this morning, loved by you unconditionally. In Jesus' name.